When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 56, Using a Plant-Based Diet to Reverse High Blood Pressure with Kristen Bummer. Hello, veggie lovers. Happy Sunday. It is so good to talk to you today. I know that my podcast episodes have been spreading further and further apart, and I'm so sorry, but I have been really busy and happily busy working on edits for my book. My book is now ready for pre-order, and it is so exciting. The cover is so cute. I'm so grateful to have a publisher that is able to take care of all of that and do that and surprise me. And it's just so beautiful. The name of my book, the title of my book is A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy and is available on pre-order on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. So if you're interested in hearing or reading my book when it comes out, go ahead and order it now. I'm so excited that it's going to be available. Right now, it's estimated to be available September the 17th. That might be moved up, but we'll see how it goes. But for now, September 17th is the estimated drop rate or drop date for my book. Now, if you want to be informed, if you want to get more information about the book, and also get a free Veggie Fit Kids e-guide, go on over to my website, veggiefitkids.com, and scroll all the way to the bottom where it says sign up for the newsletter, and go ahead and sign up, and then you will be emailed the Veggie Fit Kids e-guide that has some useful information about plant-based diets in children. So thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for your support and for your patience. I'm really excited about season three, and in the next episode, I will be telling you more about that. So thanks for hanging with me, and I really, really appreciate your support. Other ways that you can support me is to write a review for my podcast, rate my podcast. I really, really appreciate it, and of course, share it with other people that you think will benefit. So today on the podcast, I have Miss Kristen Bummer, who is just so darling, and this is really a great conversation. Kristen is the creator and lead mentor of The Forever Diet. She offers a 14-day reboot challenge to help people adopt and thrive on a plant-based diet. 
She enjoys teaching in a fun, relatable, and charismatic way, making optimal health not only enticing, but attainable for everyone. She is the director of the Compassionate Living Campaign at Humane Action Pittsburgh and works to champion healthy habits at an institutional level, affecting change on a grand scale. She writes a blog called The Nourishing Life and is also a homeschool mom, raising her five-year-old vegan. In her spare time, she competes in obstacle course racing, always trying to challenge the limits of her plant-based strength and mobility. And Kristen and I have a really great conversation. And she told me some things that I actually didn't know about her. And that's why I put the title of this podcast on using a plant-based diet to reverse high blood pressure. So you're going to get to hear her testimonial, which is an amazing testimonial, and why she decided to adopt a plant-based journey, how she went through her pregnancy and raising her daughter, how she is able to overcome challenges and plan for travel and all kinds of wonderful pearls. She is currently able to mentor people through the Forever Diet, and there's a program there that she has available. So if you're interested more in what she offers, go to theforeverdiet.org. So T-H-E, foreverdiet.org so that you can see more about what she has to offer through her product. I hope that you really enjoy this interview and I look forward to talking to you really soon. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am so happy to have one of my fellow friends and colleagues, Kristen Bummer, on the show today. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. So I first met you, I guess, virtually, uh, working with uh, Chef AJ and in her groups and those kinds of things. And it's been a few years now and quite a journey, but I actually am really excited to get into your story. So I want to know, what is your plant-based journey? How did you arrive to where you are today? Sure. So I'm happy to share. Um, I actually started my plant-based journey in 2011. So I was in my early 30s, and I was starting to have some high blood pressure. And I knew enough to be concerned about that, even though my doctors had never been concerned, but it was alarming enough to me. And I noticed a gradual trend and I wanted to do something about it, but I didn't know what. And so I was just sort of, I don't know, lost, I guess. And a friend happened to mention completely independently, this book called The China Study. And I went and read it right away. And all she told me about it was there's some link between dairy and cancer. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I've never heard anything about this. So I read the China study. And by the end of the book, my husband and I both had decided right then and there, that was it. We were done with dairy. We were done with meat and we were plant-based. And very shortly after that, within a matter of weeks, we came across Forks Over Knives and Dr. Esselstyn and the, the whole amazing crew involved in that movie. And then we became whole foods plant-based and removed all the oil from our diet as well. So without really trying that hard, um, we both lost about 15 pounds very quickly. And 
maintained it very easily for the first time ever. Um, I had never been really overweight, but probably about 10 to 15 pounds heavier than I wanted to be. And it was such a new freedom to be able to just eat good food and maintain my weight and not worry about it without working out like crazy or doing all, you know, any crazy diets or anything. So that was the start of it. And then as time went on, um, as you said, we met in Chef AJ's program because at a point at the end of my pregnancy where I started to go back to non-vegan food. And that was a uh, really disturbing to me because I had, through my education about plant-based food, had become an ethical vegan for the first time as well. So when I started eating stuff that wasn't vegan, it really bothered me kind of ethically. And it, that was the first time that there was red flags that went up that I don't really have the control over my food that I thought that I did or that I want to have. And so that's what led me to Chef AJ and started to become aware of food addiction and you know having this draw to processed food that was a little bit beyond my rational control, if you will. Uh, and then I had a lot of success on her program as well. And I took off the rest of my baby weight when I was about a, when my daughter was a year old, I was still wearing, I didn't feel like I was that heavy, but I was still wearing clothes that I was wearing in my full-term pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that was crazy to me. Like I said, I'd never been that overweight. And so it really bothered me that I was I just didn't have the control. That was the biggest thing. And there, there, I knew that there was this disconnect. And so uh, starting to get a grip on that made all the difference in the world to me. And I was able to bring my blood pressure back into normal ranges. My cholesterol came back to normal. Everything smoothed out. And then for the past four and a half years, I've been able to establish habits that really work and that they're sustainable. And I've been in a really great place ever since. Not to say that I'm perfect, but there's been just a, a long-lasting shift that has just helped me feel like, okay, I got this now, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And, that, and that's such a gift that I, I wish on everybody, you know? Yeah, that's really great. So whenever you discovered that your blood pressure was a little elevated, you said your doctors weren't super concerned. So you hadn't really been put on medication yet, correct? Right. And I have the the blessing and a curse of being married to a physician. And so I didn't go to an annual physical because I already had somebody in the house that was kind of keeping an eye on me. And, but I wouldn't, of course, he doesn't check my blood pressure all the time. But what would happen is I would go to urgent care if I, you know, got sick or got hurt. And over the course of five or six years, I noticed that, you know, once or twice a year, if I went to an urgent care center, I paid attention to what my vitals were and I I could hear my blood pressure. That's a little higher. That's a little higher. And my father has been on blood pressure medication since he was 19. Mm. So I was extra aware that perhaps there's, you know, something that's fairly unusual, especially back then to have been on blood pressure medication that young. So I was aware of it enough on my own. And then I found the plant-based stuff. And then it's interesting, we decided to go plant-based, but we wanted to be scientific about it. And so I scheduled a visit with my regular doctor, who I hadn't seen in five years, and asked for a lipid panel. 
And when I went into that bit, and I just wanted before, I, I wasn't there for nutritional advice. I knew what I was going to do, but I just wanted to get the script for the panel and to have a physical in advance so that I had a baseline and a frame of reference. But at that visit, my blood pressure was, ooh, I think it was like 142 over 90. Mm. And he walked in the room with a script for blood pressure medication. And so he was ready to put me on it. And fortunately, I knew enough at that point to say, no, thank you. I don't want that right now. I want to at least try this stuff. Just give me a chance to do this on my own. And he said, well all right, I'll give you a chance. But if you come back here in six months and your blood pressure is still high, you're taking this medication. And I, oh, and then he also said, I just have to let you know, sometimes people have bad genes and you probably just one of those people, you know, I told you about my dad and everything. Well, I went back to him in a month because I knew we had changed so much. I felt like a different person. And I went back in a month with my new lipid panel and I said, look what I did. And as you know, he sees so many patients a day. He doesn't remember everything about every patient and he had forgotten our former conversation. And he just looked at my lipid panel and me sitting in front of him at a, a good weight. And he said, wow, that's awesome. You must be one of those people with good genes. And he just completely missed the fact that my genes hadn't changed, but I had controlled my blood pressure and my other lipid panel results strictly with diet changes alone. Wow. So was your so, cholesterol elevated whenever you checked it to that first time? It was at 220. Wow. And it came down, I think it came down to about 170 very quickly. In one month. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then your blood pressure normalized in a month too. Yes. Yes. That's pretty dramatic. Um, You know, I, two, two things I want to point out for the listeners. And I think you're in an unusual situation because you live with a physician. Although I will say physicians are probably the worst people in the world as far as going to their annual visits. I'm just going to say that right now. I had called into my OB gen and I was like, I think it's been, I feel like it's been about a year since I had my chat and they're like, uh, actually it's been three years. I was like, Uh how is that even possible? You know? So it happens all the time, but as a physician, a pediatrician, especially because pediatricians are so used to doing preventive care. That's like our bread and butter. Right. But also as a physician that really cares about lifestyle medicine, it's really important to get your annual visits because in urgent care people, they're not, they're not going to look, unless you're like really bad, like your blood pressure is going to have to be like 200 over 100 and like, oh yeah, go to the ER and go take care of this. Otherwise they're just going to be like, they'll get taken care of by their primary care. That's not their job. Their job is just to deal with your sore throat or your, you know, sprained wrist. So it is important, but you already knew, you already had this family history in your brain you had this like thing telling you like, oh my gosh, my dad's been on blood pressure pills his whole life. I want to try to avoid this. What can I do to empower myself? What do you think it was about you and maybe the difference in you compared to other people that helped you feel empowered? Like you really did have a choice. Why didn't you believe the doctor when he's like, you know what? You just have bad genes. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about this. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's a great question. And I think that's my personality in general. And that I don't tend to just settle for the status quo. And it's not that I never, never take no for an answer because I do have a limit. I'm not, you know, so stubborn that I would just never listen to anybody's advice. And, um, but I think almost to the contrary, it seems I'm very optimistic in general. And I just feel like there, when it comes to a problem, there just, there has to be a solution. And so I just keep looking and in this or in other areas too, I just keep working at it until I find a solution. There just, there has to be a better answer. And early death and disability was just not a acceptable solution. And so I just, I, I had enough of a standard that I knew I just needed to keep searching until I found something that was going to be the answer for me. Yeah. And you're young. How old were you in 2011? Um, I think, let's see, I was 32. Yeah. So right? you're really, really young. Yeah. yeah. So it's good that you had already been thinking ahead, like, okay, maybe it's not super elevated, but if I right. go on like this for decades, yes, it's going to cause some kind of chronic condition that I don't want to have. Correct. So let me try to do something about it. So I commend you for that. So, I mean, that's, well, that's thanks. powerful, but I also want to just point out to listeners that in general, physicians do tend to have that attitude about not really believing patients when patients are like, I want to make changes, you know, part of, part of his thinking was kind of like, yeah, right. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance, but I know you're going to be in here again. And you know, I'm still going to take medicine. And then the second thing being, because they don't see transformations like this very often, they don't really have it in their consciousness as a possibility. The only The major thing, especially when it comes to internal medicine physicians that see a lot of older people on 20 and 30 medicines and see just the lifestyles that we lead, they don't really have that in their consciousness. Like to Mm -hmm. them, it's just disability, like you're saying, death, morbidity, sick people that eat the standard American diet and don't feel empowered to change. And that is what physicians think of. So don't. So, so for the listeners out there, I'm just reminding you that you have to take kind of take this in your own hands, just like Kristen and her husband did. You can't just depend on your physician to be guiding you through that. Wow, that's great. That's an amazing story. Congratulations for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So now we're here eight years later. <laughs> yeah, and you, you said that you really have found the habits that help you sustain this diet. Now, it sounds like you and your husband you guys pretty much cold turkeyed it besides a little, you know, issue during your pregnancy, which right. we can talk about later. Um, you, you feel, I feel like you guys have been doing pretty good, but then about five years ago, you had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> so tell, me, tell me about that. And what was your thought process during your pregnancy and then raising a child? Did you decide from the beginning that you would raise her plant-based or was that a later decision? How has that been? Um, so it's interesting how life just has a tendency to work itself out, right? We actually had decided not to have children and there were a a whole host of, you know, decisions or, um, factors behind that decision. And we'd been married for at least 10 years and it was, you know, in the latter part of that, that we had made that decision and decided to make it final, announced our whole family, look, stop just waiting for us. Like, it's not going to happen. We're not, you know, we don't want that path for us and all those things. So 
we had decided not to. Well, then we decided that's silly. We're, we're missing out. All our friends are telling us we're crazy to not have kids. And so maybe there's something to it. And of course, there's a lot of other factors that went into reversing that decision. <laughs> and so, but one thing that happened along the way that, of course, I never, never even crossed my mind was that I didn't just snap my fingers and become pregnant. Even when, once we made the decision, then I started to have fertility issues. And now, of course, anybody that's been in that situation of flip-flopping, if you, have, you make a decision to have a baby, you probably want it like now, right? Like yesterday. And so th- then I, again, back to sort of not settling for the status quo, we launched on this campaign. All right, what do we have to do to get pregnant? What, do, you know, what are all the factors that we can you know, just put, stack all the odds in our favor to make this happen quicker and not, not just wait uh, until it happens and, and all those things? So along the way, we had already been plant-based for a couple of years at that point and learned that actually all the stuff we're already doing is fantastic for fertility. So we were getting to an optimal weight is great. Getting all the nutrients from plants is great. So we're already on that path. And there was no doubt in my mind that if plant-based was the healthiest state for an adult that it was, you know, given a a little bit more fact checking and just making sure that we were right about it. It made perfect sense that that was the right state for pregnancy and it's the right state for infancy and it's the right state for, you know, the rest of this child's life. And so I feel that one of the best gifts I've been able to give our daughter is raising her Mm plant-based. So She's been, you know, vegan since birth. And then what do you know, when she was two days old, she wasn't uh, taking in her breast milk enough. And so she actually had to go on formula for a couple of days in the hospital. And I was, you know, at one point would have thought I'd be devastated by it. But I was so concerned about her that whatever anybody told me I needed to do to keep her well is what we were going to do, of course. (laughs) So that was, you know, just a little blip on the radar. But ever since then, it's been such a joy to to not only be able to raise her that way, but so that, you know, she never went through any of the trouble that we see so many adults go through or, or children that try to make the transition to plant-based because mm-hmm. they're having to come away from foods that they've gotten used to. And in her case, that's not an issue. She's not used to anything else. So it is in a lot of cases, it's easier to, to be able to raise a baby from birth, plant-based or vegan or both, than to, you know, than to make the transition later on. Mm-hmm. But she's, she has adapted and she, even at, you know, even when she was, you know, two and a half, she understood a lot about it and, you know, could make a lot of decisions and uh, understand what she should or shouldn't eat. And so it's, it's really fun to sort of live through that, uh, in the eyes of a child as well, like so many other parenting things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It probably is a little bit easier, but definitely for the older kids, it's not impossible and easier than you might think. I transitioned my children when my oldest was six and my youngest was about 19 months, 18, 19 months old. Um, and it was fine, (laughs) but I also am the one that does all the cooking and the grocery shopping. So really, was no choice and they right. don't have cards or credit cards so they couldn't absolutely go out. absolutely <laughs> so what what do you feel has been if any the biggest challenge 
in raising a plant-based child? What are the things that you might encounter, obstacles or difficulties you might encounter out in the real world? You know, I think there's concern from other people and, and doubts, I suppose, you know, from naysayers. Now, I will say, like you mentioned before, I have an, a unique situation being married to a physician and people, and you probably experience that as well, I think they automatically cut us a little bit of slack because they know we have the foundation, the knowledge, the background, that if we've made the decision, we haven't just made it willy-nilly, we haven't made it based on something we heard on the news, it's a well-thought-out decision backed by science, right? So, so that helps a lot. And aside from that, I think the, honestly, the biggest challenge, and I, I've heard this years ago, maybe even the first year or two that I was vegan, that the hardest thing about being a vegan parent is not the vegan part, it's the parenting part. Mm-hmm. And we still deal with all the same issues that everybody deals with. And, you know, you just, you come up with, you come up against challenges and you face them just like any other challenges in parenting. So the, and one of the other issues as well, and being a vegan adult or child isn't the decision that I've made, but it is that the hardest part about it is explaining to her why everybody isn't vegan. Mm-hmm. And you know, and she's going to school where kids are eating, she's just in preschool right now, but kids are eating animals in front of her. And she has a very hard time just understanding that and making sense of it because it, it doesn't make sense, you know, from her perspective, she doesn't know any different and just, just can't wrap her mind around why anybody would make that decision. So that that's the, the hardest part is sort of being in a society you know, if we could just go live in a bubble, there would be no issue with that. But the hardest part is not just being plant-based, but being plant-based in a society where that's not the norm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because it really is a complete paradigm shift. And what it sounds like from your story is that before 2011, you weren't really into that animal advocacy either, right? No. It all came together. And I feel like I'm the same way. Like I didn't really, I think I've always been an inner hippie, like uh-huh. my whole life, but it just yeah. wasn't time for me yeah. to really be able to live that lifestyle until I became yeah. plant-based and a vegan. But once you open that world, your paradigm shifts so much that everything just seems so weird. Like it just seems so yes. ridiculous. I don't know if you've seen this commercial. We don't watch TV very often, but I think we were watching like a basketball game or something the other day. My youngest one is super into basketball. And we saw uh, this commercial about milk and how they, um, you know, how like some cows have like extra hormones they put into yes. them. And so the sure. milk commercial was advertising if you want to live a life without hormones or something like that. And, and my kids, because my kids are so knowledgeable, like yeah. they just like started rolling their eyes. They're like, mom, can you believe what they're saying? Because most people don't understand that any mammalian milk has hormones in it. That's like the whole point of the milk yeah, is to help right. them grow. You know, like that's what human milk does to babies. It's right. human baby growth serum. Right. And they know that. And so they yeah. totally see through the commercial and be like, yeah, they're just playing on the ignorance of, yes. 
of society to make them feel better about right. this product. And my kids knew that, but it's like living yeah. in this world where you know these things, sometimes it just makes it so strange to look through yes. the lens, especially when you raise them early like that. So I right. think it can be difficult sometimes. What yeah. tips would you have for parents raising their children or that they've decided to raise their children vegan or plant-based? Do you have any mm -hmm. tips that you share with other people to kind of help them with that? Sure. I think my, my biggest philosophy is that this is about offering, not necessarily insisting or pushing. Because I feel like once you make a battle out of it, then you've already lost the war. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the age of the child obviously plays a role into that when you have toddlers, preschoolers, you're basically, you're offering the food, no, no matter what it is. And so it is your choice to choose food and offer food that's healthy for them and actually is going to be helpful. And you're not offering food that is going to be harmful. So if you can see food in those two categories, which is not the norm, right? That's not what we see on TV. And that's not what you see in the grocery store. We don't see you know, red lights and green lights everywhere. We see, you know, everything is marketed and labeled as it's great. And it's, it's very confusing as a consumer when you don't understand uh, everything behind it. So, but I think again, back to children, you're, you're offering choices and you're making the healthy choices accessible. Mm -hmm. So not only having it in your house, but when you're buying fruit, I, I cut it up and I have it in containers that are at a low level in the fridge. So even at, I don't know, three and four, she could open up the fridge and grab a bowl of apples. You know, mm -hmm. she doesn't have to wait for me to go get it. And there's not, you know, a pile of candy bars within reach that she can just go help herself to. And that stuff is just not available. So when you, when the healthy choices are not only there, but they're accessible and, um, and like physically at a level where they can reach them, then it just increases the buy-in. And another thing is just getting kids involved in the kitchen. So whether it's grocery shopping, menu planning, and you know, teenagers can absolutely, you know, preteens can plan the menu for the week and you maybe give them a bunch of choices. And you could, even when she was younger, I'd put choices on a flashcard, pictures of meals, and she could, you know, pick out what we're going to eat that week. And that gives so much buy-in. And then we plan the meal for the week together. And then we go to the, we have a list and we homeschool. So she's writing and I'm dictating words and spelling them. And she's working on writing out the grocery list. She has so much ownership in that. We go to the grocery store and we pick out those foods and we come home and make those foods. When we put it on the plate, she's going to eat it, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I coach people through that. And that seems to be very consistent response with children when they have a choice in the matter and they feel that their opinions are heard, they, they increase their compliance so greatly because they just feel empowered to be involved in that decision. They're not just being handed a plate saying, you've got to finish your veggies before you can go watch TV, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I learned very early on not to do the the if then thing with food and say, you know, if you eat your green beans, then you can have ice cream. Mm -hmm. That just creates such a battle and it, it elevates ice cream up on this, uh, what do you call it, pedestal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, green beans must be this junk that you just have to get through in order to, you know, get to the ice cream. So that just creates this societal image of all the junk food as being so fantastic. And, 
and I just tried early on not to do that. So uh, my philosophy, what I teach people is to have a plate of food. And if you're going to offer a dessert, not that I don't suggest offering dessert every single night, but you can, but if whatever it is, if it's fruit, if it's a, you know, banana ice cream or whatever, I tend to serve everything all at once. And Mm -hmm. so it's on the plate. She can eat it. She cannot eat it. And if I'm okay with her eating dessert, frankly, I don't care when she eats it. And I know her enough to this point to have a good idea of what volume she's going to eat. And so I don't put this like huge mountain of food that she'll never get through. I put a reasonable amount of food and just let her pick and choose. And I just let go of it. And I just don't worry about it. And if we get to a point where she's eating, I notice she's eating too many sweets. I don't even talk about it. I just, for the next few meals, the treats just kind of disappear. And she's offered healthy food for the next several meals. And I mean, it's all healthy, but it's relative, right? Mm -hmm. So then all she has available is, you know, let's say veggies and potatoes and rice. And so that's what she eats. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and and if you can do, if you can kind of keep a mental tally as a parent of what is going in your child, then you can sort of manipulate what they have access to so that they're getting all the healthy food and, and you're sort of kind of trickling in the sweet stuff on your own schedule without making a battle about it. You know, we, again, like I said, we don't even talk about it. I just know, okay, we've had a lot of this, we've had all of that. Let's put that away for a while and go back to, you know, all the kind of more savory options. And that just seems to work. I don't know if I just have a lucky kid, but like I said, I've coached that method to a lot of people and they, they seem to, you know, respond as well. No, I, that's exactly all the stuff I've written in my book. So I agree with you. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Thank you for endorsing my book. No, you're welcome. But but no, I completely agree. And one of the things that I think is very embedded in our society and a lot of parents do is that you can't have dessert until you eat this thing. And then also I agree with you in probably offering dessert too frequently and making it like this super special thing. I think when it comes to foods in general, just like you had mentioned, trying to depolarize foods and label them as good foods or bad foods, and instead discuss food in terms of its health-promoting benefits. Mm -hmm. Some foods have way more health-promoting benefits than others, and some may not have any real health Mm -hmm. benefits, but they're still they're still part of our lives and we can still enjoy them and we can still eat them without necessarily having to feel guilty about it. But whenever we make it that way, children are naturally intuitive. They're naturally in tune with their hunger and satiety. We just have to offer to them structure, just like you were talking Mm -hmm. about, and those health promoting foods that they can choose from. And then just like you said, step back and let it go. <laughs> we yes. have to trust them when we're hovering over them be like, eat one more bite, eat this, eat that. It, it becomes, they lose all their pleasure from eating. Right. And one of two things happens. They either under eat and become pickier. Mm-hmm. Or they start overeating in order to please and gratify us. Mm-hmm. And we don't want either of those things. We right. want our kids to be trusting of their own bodies, their own appetites, and be intuitive with their eating. So I love all yeah. of those. I particularly like the flashcard idea you had because I agree yeah. with 
involving kids in the grocery shopping and the menu planning, but I hadn't thought of that flashcard idea. So that's really yeah. cool. So do you like print pictures and cut them or do you just, how do you do the flashcard thing? So I do, uh, I do a lot of different things with my laminator. And nice. <laughs> yeah, so I'll either, I just like, I mean, all recipes have pictures with them, right? So I just will print out a picture in a small enough size, like a, a thumbnail or a, I guess they're more like three by five inch cards. So it just depends. And it run it through the laminator and then that becomes, you know, we, we make the same recipes over and over again. And of course she likes the same recipes over and over again. So it's easy to just have a handful that, you know, she can just go through and, and pick out. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll put some away that we, we we're doing something too frequently. If I know she's always going to pick this one, you know, we'll, we'll kind of hide it away for a little bit and, and just pull it out another time. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. You, you don't have to have a laminator to make that work. You can, you know, just point to pictures. I mean, you could have a recipe book and just flip through it and, you know, have them point to pictures that way too. That's great. But I, I do like decreasing the choice because sometimes yeah. too much choice is overwhelming for kids. So a recipe sure. book might be a little too much and they're like overwhelmed. They're like, I don't want to do it at all. Yeah. I, I just love the fact And I also love laminators. So- <laughs> Does Alejandra, who edits these podcasts, she'll know what we're talking about because we love using the laminate in our office. Uh, it is really fun. Yeah, I think those are great, great tips. I think what you said at the beginning about offering, not insisting or pushing works really great for spouses and significant others as well. Because True. I a lot. it sounds like you and your husband were both gung-ho from the beginning and you jumped in with both feet, but that's not usually the case in Correct. couples. Correct. And what happens is like one cup, one side of the couple reads all this information. They get freaked out. They start panicking and they decide that this is the way to go. But the other partner is like, yeah, no, I really want to eat this. And, but then it starts becoming this like push pull and it just becomes, you know, it gets yes. out of hand. So that's something that yes. I also recommend when it comes to couples, whenever you coach people, do you have specific tips when trying to work with a mixed household yeah, <laughs> when it comes to different diets? It's tricky, right? Um, I actually did a, a relationship transformation course with Stacey Martino a couple of years ago now. And, and I followed a lot of her work and have learned so much. And I didn't get into it for health-related issues. But as I hear you know, her teaching certain tools and techniques, I, I think, oh, that would work. Like, that's a great tool for, um, you know, for that kind of mixed relationship, as you said. And, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's probably the, the biggest thing I feel like most people arriving at a plant-based lifestyle have come here because they have some real problems, like whether they're really overweight or they're managing a chronic disease or they have, you know, they have some true concern. And they, my advice is to worry about yourself first and get yourself well first. And then, and only then start worrying about anybody else in in the end, you can't control anybody else's behavior. And when you try to, it just makes you crazy. Mm -hmm. So it not only creates conflict in a relationship dynamic, but it usually doesn't end up where you want it to anyway. And so now you've got all this conflict and you're still not happy. You're still on a different page, you know? So the, the biggest 
I think advice is to sort of put on your own oxygen mask first and, and then we worry about anybody else. And until, and what that does also, it gets somebody to a point where they're confident in the system, right? So if their partner is questioning it or they're not sure, the person doing it, if they're brand new to it, they don't really know either. They don't, they've read and they've heard and, and all that, and that's important. But until you experience it for yourself and you sustain it for yourself for a long time, it's very hard to convince anybody else that you've got it all figured out, you know, because you just, you haven't, it's hard to be that confident in anything that you just are, you know, I hate to say it's hearsay because there's so much, you know, science backing it up that that's doesn't really do it justice, but you understand what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Like until you've lived it, it's very difficult to coach anybody else through the process. Mm -hmm what happens as a result, I think too, in the, a lot of the relationship work, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting to me to, because again, I'm talking about not settle, settling for the status quo and, and we're going to kind of divert in a little topic here for a second. But the, the reason I sought the relationship counseling is not because we were in such a terrible place and we were headed for divorce, but we were in a place where I knew we could be better. And it was intriguing to me when I found out that there's people out there that teach you that, right? So they've got it all figured out and let's go learn from them and figure out, you know, what we can do better. And the, one of the foundational principles of that relationship um, development is that it only takes one person to transform a relationship. And, and it's the same with food. And so by, with, transforming the relationship, I went and did all sorts of personal development. And by showing up as a better, more authentic version of myself, that wasn't, um, oh, I don't know, I guess, you know, it's, it's sort of a complicated to explain, but, but by showing up as a better person for myself, it helped anybody else in my circle relate to me better. So my relationship with my husband got better, my parents got better, my sister got better, my daughter got better. And it was because I was focusing on myself and doing everything that I could to be the best person um, in general. And then people are attracted to that and people just respond to that without even thinking. And so again, that's what I'm just to get back to the food and lifestyle by thriving on this plant-based lifestyle, other people in your life will see that and be attracted to it. You don't have to go out and convince them of anything. They will watch you do it, see you thrive, see you come alive as a person. I mean, sometimes people are just, you know, suffering from depression and anxiety and they're just so many things that are related to food that when you can get the food right, so many things start to kind of click and to come into place better. And that draws other people in and makes other people want a piece of that. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. And I say this all the time is the more joy that we can have ourselves, the more we can exude out to others and yeah. bring up everybody else's level of joy. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at is whenever we do personal development and work on ourselves, we can have more joy. We can just be yeah. happier people and that makes everything better around us too. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Absolutely. And 
I agree. And I think, you know, the only thing I would probably disagree on is that I don't think anybody has everything figured out. I think we're all just Mm -hmm. in different parts in our journey. And even this, writing a book freaked me out because I feel like a book is like so permanent and it's like something (laughs) I believe right now, but then I had to let it go and realize that five years from now, I may have learned new information. I may be practicing a different way and uh, thank goodness for new editions. So maybe I'll have the opportunity to write the second edition of my book when I (laughs) know more experienced in things. It's all just a journey, right? And there's no better uh, or worse. It's just different parts of the journey. And that's how we can help each other is by knowing that, you know, some people have learned a certain thing, a certain skill, a tool that can help us and we can help them in a different area because we're all different parts and and different things, but that's great. That's great advice that you have. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and I'm curious about your animal advocacy work because I think it's fascinating to learn about you really diving in and, and doing some advocacy work. And really this hasn't been like something that you've been passionate about your whole life. So tell me more about what you do and uh, how that kind of has weaved into your journey of plant-based nutrition and becoming vegan and you know, yeah. how you see it now. So it's so interesting. I have to cringe a little bit when you asked me that before and I'm so glad that we're coming back to this because I, I feel like I need to redeem myself um, it's such an interesting thing. Like you said, the whole paradigm shift, because I, since I was five years old, I wanted to be a vet. That's all I wanted to do my whole life. And so I did what it took. I tried to anyway. And so I did well in school and I went to Cornell university because my dad told me that's where all the vets come from. Cause I've lived in New York state at the time. And it was true. That's where everybody went to school. So so that's what I knew I needed to do. So I went to Cornell. I got an undergrad degree in animal science and I didn't get into vet school. But right after that, I followed my husband to medical school and I got a job working at a kennel. And mm-hmm. since I was 12, I've been working with animals and you know, in veterinary offices and large animal practices, you know, large animal research, all sorts of stuff. So animals have always been an integral part of my life, not to mention all the pets that we had growing up. We had rabbits and cats and goats and a horse at one point. And I have always had a connection with animals. I never made the connection with the food. And it, it blows my mind now. I don't even understand it. And you know, a lot of people say, I love animals, I love animals. But I was, after... Um, so after college, I started working at in a really upscale indoor pet resort. So we had all the fruit fruit things for cats and dogs, and they were treated like royalty. After that job, we relocated, and I got another job doing a lot of training at a similar, you know, pet resort, dog training facility, boarding facility. And after that, I opened my own, and I called it Canine Kingdom, and it was it's called the the tagline was where dogs rule. And the whole concept is that we center our lives around our pets. They mean so much to everybody. And so we would, I mean, they would come in and get spa treatments and we had all these like fancy things that we would do and people loved it. We used to exercise them on the treadmill and do all these crazy things. And so in my 
most of my life, I was treating pets, cats and dogs as royalty. And I loved all the bunnies and I, you know, I'd always loved all the cute and furry ones. We had fish and pets growing up. But like I said, I never made the connection with the ones I was eating. And I think so much of the only thing I can explain is that I had been taught that I had to eat them to survive. Mm-hmm. And that I can, I'm going to crumble into a, you know, a ball of goo on the floor if I don't drink my milk and get my calcium and I don't have, you know, enough protein to be strong and all that. So, so like so many people, I was just sort of accidentally, I suppose, brainwashed into thinking it doesn't matter. We just have to. And if it's me versus that cow, well, then I guess, I guess I have to eat it. Like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what other choice I have. And so but it's not something that I really struggled with, right? That just became the norm. And then later, as soon as I understood all this stuff in 2011, when I started going plant-based, that was such a freedom to realize, oh, I don't have to hurt anybody in order to survive. And in fact, I'll be healthier if I don't eat them anymore and drink their milk and eat the cheese and everything. So so it's so weird to me because I have always been an animal animal advocate, but not for all animals. And I was very speciesist to use the the term. Um, you know, my compassion was huge for all the cute furry cuddly ones, and farm animals were in a separate category. Mm-hmm. And then when I had the opportunity to realize how crazy that is to draw that line. I wanted to sort of make up for my past, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I started to become active with the Humane Society of the United States. There was a, a state um, organization called Humane PA, which was for Pennsylvania specific uh, legislation. These are both, uh, or sorry, Humane PA was a political action committee. So I started to get involved at a, you know, kind of on a big scale, trying to change some of the laws that affect the way that we treat animals. And, um, and then after that, I started working, there's a local organization, even more local, called Humane Action Pittsburgh, where, again, their focus started with legislation on a local level, but quickly we branched out into other things, right? So there's obviously a lot of other ways we can help animals outside of the legislation. So we instituted a program, Meatless Mondays Pittsburgh program. And I, I like to help people one-on-one, but I would so much rather help the masses if there's any way that I can. So mm-hmm. it, it's sort of teaching the teacher, so to speak. And so we started working at a uh, institutional level and started working with the schools, grade schools and universities we worked with uh, Heinz Field and PNC Park, the two massive you know, sports stadiums in Pittsburgh, and got them to put vegan items on the menu and worked with some local restaurants to try to do that. We have a local organization that only works on veganizing restaurants. They're not they're so much veganizing restaurants, but they're making restaurants that have vegan options they're making them prominent on the menu so that when people open it up, they see, okay, this is, there's a lot of different choices here. So, and it's sort of normalizing. The whole concept is normalizing plant-based options so that people know it's out there and if they choose to eat it, it's readily available. 
And after Meatless Mondays Pittsburgh, we started working with, uh, with Humane Action Pittsburgh on a number of different options with the city of Pittsburgh to try to grow plant-based lifestyle as much as we possibly can. And so we have a number of different things in the works right now, trying to just spread awareness as much as possible and make plant-based options more normal and available and teach people how to do it. So in my opinion, there's, there's a ton of information out there when it's great and we can always use more, but there's also a lot of people that have heard a little bit of the information and they just don't know what to do with it or how to cook and how to implement it. You know, how do I teach my kids? What do I, where do we even start? And so that's what I've tried to focus my work on now is just trying as much as possible to reach a lot of people and teach them the how to's and kind of walk them through the process, both in the advocacy level with the city projects and then in my personal business as well. Yeah. Wow. That's a great story. And it's, I think it's very similar to what I talked about in my Ted talk of that feeling of like, well, it's, it's a necessary evil. You know, we have to eat animals because otherwise we wouldn't survive. It would be like all deficient or bones would disintegrate and all this stuff, you know, and so that's just kind of put the separation in your brain and it's just acceptable because that's just how it's done. That's what everybody's doing. And then once you step over that line, and that paradigm shifts and you see the world in a different place. I think for a little bit, it can be super painful, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's like, wow. And I would never even call myself an animal lover. And that's how I started in my Ted talk is I'm not like, I was yeah. not one of those people that like save things or, yeah. you know, but I have a lot of empathy. Yeah. And that term speciesism is, is really important because that's really what we're doing. Uh, the other day, my mom was like, you know, I have this little five pound Shih Tzu Yorkie and she's okay. totally princess in my house. Okay. Like yeah. super spoiled dog. And we're like petting her and, you know, cooing with her. And my mom is yeah. like, wow, why do we love these dogs so much? And I told her it's because we bred them to be yeah. this way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we did this. you know, this is what we like, but yeah. you know, yeah. from the beginning, coyotes, <laughs> aren't cuddly and loving right. like that. We made them this way. Right. And if we believe that an animal is worth all this time and effort and the ability to live its life, then we have to transmit that to these other animals and other species, even if yeah. they aren't cute and cuddly and right. want to give us unconditional love and actually accept yeah. Yes. You know, so, but it takes, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of people don't make that transition because it is so painful. Yeah. Cognitive dissonance is so painful. And for people that have a lot of empathy, it breaks your heart. It really breaks your heart. So they don't Mm -hmm. even want to go there. They don't want to even go steps away from it, but so true. Thank you for doing the work you do because it's really important Yeah, and more people need to do that. So I really appreciate that. Well, I want to end with question about your habits that I ask yeah. all my guests. Yeah. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? And it can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about eating or food. Yeah. Okay. Oh, is there anything else? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Oh, it's a good question because, you know, like you talk about, we're all on this journey and my habits have changed a lot over the past eight years. And I think the biggest habit I have to say that I am most proud of is that I have, I make it a priority to maintain my lifestyle choices no matter what. And so we travel a lot. We just got back from a vacation to Disney World and, um, and we've been on cruises. And one of the cruises I took uh, maybe nine or 10 years ago now, I came back over 10 pounds heavier than when I left in a week. Crazy, right? But very common. And and I don't do that anymore. And I've, I think that the biggest habit is planning ahead. And so whatever the situation is coming, I know that there's going to be temptations. I know that there's going to be maybe a lack of you know, food that I consider safe. And so I bring it with me and I'm unapologetic about it. You know, I don't inconvenience anybody. In fact, some, my grandmother used to say she loved having me as a house guest. I was the only house guest that used to come and uh, bring all my own food and cook for her. <laughs> normally it's the other way around. But, you know, so I just, I, I literally bring food wherever I go and make it a priority to put my needs first above the social norms, right? So in the beginning, it was uncomfortable. In the beginning, it was strange. And I felt like people were going to be watching me or judging me. But I reached a point where that is not going to stay with me for the long term, but my health is going to stay with me for the long term. And that's what's more important. And so my, my habit is to plan ahead and just anticipate what's coming and figure out what I need to do to take care of myself and my family and do that even when it's a little bit uncomfortable. That's a great habit. And that's so helpful for the rest of your life or it's, and it can apply to so many different things. But I really appreciate that you pointed out that it was awkward at the beginning mm -hmm. because this is not the social norm, right? It's not the social norm to plan the, these things ahead because you know, there should be food wherever you go. So it yeah. does seem out of place and you do feel weird, but then you realize, people don't really care that much. They're really more focused on their own thing than what yes. doing. And the more you practice, the easier it feels until that intrinsic motivation to feel good before, during, and after your trip outweighs any awkwardness yes. or difficulty or time that it takes to plan. Do you feel like at this point, you kind of have your system down so it doesn't even require that much effort to plan ahead? Yeah. And I, every time I go on a trip, I think, you know, I should laminate this. <laughs> because, like I do it with my packing clothing for my daughter, but I have never done it with my menu. And it's so silly because I do the same things all the time. And I could just get the grocery list ahead, the packing list ahead and just not even recreate it. But, but certainly I've done it enough that it's still an easy exercise to do. Well, I totally vote for you laminating it. I, I think that's a great idea. And you seem like such an organized person. I'll do that yeah. before this airs. I'll have it done. <laughs> a little, little um, to-do, laminate yep. my laminate food planning list. list. That's yep. great. I love it. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Kristen. And as we close up, I would love for you to tell us you have a new service product that you're offering. So tell us about that and also yeah. how listeners can connect with you if they want to learn more about you. 
Okay, sure. Thank you. So I just have launched a, a new training program and it's called the Forever Diet. And it starts with the 14 day reboot challenge. So it's really, it's geared towards a, a few different people. And it was intentionally, I'm sorry, it was initially created for people who had been on a plant-based diet and were struggling to stick with it. So they knew the information, they knew that's what they wanted to do, and they just couldn't stick with it. And so it's an online training course that helps people go through the steps. It's 14 days. So it's a short commitment. You can do anything for 14 days, but we really dive right in and get a lot of results very quickly. And I don't just mean like you just drop a ton of weight right away because it's not focused on weight loss, although that does usually happen, but it's about establishing these habits and getting your mindset right. Because I can tell you until I'm blue in the face that I feel and the science shows that you'll be healthier and happier if you eat X, Y, and Z. But if you don't know how to do it or how to stick with it, then it doesn't do you much good. And so the whole purpose of the 14-day challenge is to experience it for yourself, to prove to yourself that you can do it for the short term, and then you decide if you want to do it for the long term. And if you do, then there's a follow-up. Um, it's called the Jumpstart Course, and we walk right into what you need to do to stick with it for the long term. So there's both options available. Now, when I did the pilot program, I also invited some people from all different background. So there was a lot of plant-based experienced people. There were people who had dabbled with it and there were people who had never tried it before, but were always kind of curious and everybody did fantastic. And as we're going through, everybody's getting great results. They're learning how to do new things and really embracing it. So it's an online training program. There's over 40 training videos in that 14 days, but it's kind of high impact. It takes only about half an hour to get through it. It's really jam-packed material, half an hour each day. There's some homework assignments. And then we have a very active and engaged Facebook group that I'm in all throughout the day, you know, answering questions and providing guidance and coaching and support. So it's been a, a really neat experience to be able to share that with a lot of people. And we have challenges going on periodically. There's one you know, in progress right now. So if you go to the foreverdiet.org, you'll either find a uh, open enrollment for the next challenge, or you'll find there's a waiting list to get into the one after that. So, so that's the, the best place to find out information about the 14-day reboot challenge or my training programs. I also am active on Facebook for the Forever Diet. So there's a Facebook um, business page for the Forever Diet. And there's also my Instagram is actually just my name. It's Kristen underscore bummer. And I post a lot of my meals there. So if anybody's interested in seeing what I eat in a day or typical meals or needing the meal ideas or a lot of, I do a lot of kids stuff there as well, that is perhaps the best place to watch. So between Instagram and the Facebook um, page, there's a lot of information out there to follow along. Awesome. That's great. Well, congratulations on that course. It sounds like you put Thank a lot you. of work into it. And it's really I have. I have. And it's, it's really fun to have it. Thank you. It's really fun to have it open and running and having people benefit from it now. Cool. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I'll make sure that we put all the links so that people can find it. 
And this was so great, Kristen. I just really enjoyed hearing about your journey and how you've made some huge changes that improves your health and your joy and just having a fabulous life with your family. So thank you so much for being a guest today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure for me as well. And I hope that you have a plantastic day. Thank you. You too. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocket surgeons music. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at VeggieFitKids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at VeggieDoctor at VeggieFitKids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast, and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again, and have a plantastic day.